Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. I look back and I think, you know, she's very lucky to, to be alive. But it was very, very tough. But it was tougher because of what I was experiencing. I loved my child intensely, but I couldn't stop the tears. And I just thought, oh, it's just stress. It's just worry. I would just continually cry for hours. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. When I was a little girl, I estimated that by the time I turned 28, I would be married, with three children, living in a luxury penthouse in the city, or a countryside manor, or a fucking castle or something. I turn 36 next month, and all I have is a personality disorder. Just kidding, I have lots of blessings in my life, but my own babies are not one of them. I've not ruled out becoming a mother in the future, either naturally adopting or fostering, but I did actively avoid it in my 20s. I was terrified of fucking up a child as much as my parents fucked up me, and I didn't believe I was up to the task. I still have these fears, and as someone who already lives with mental illness, I sometimes doubt my ability to cope if my pre-existing depression levels up to postnatal depression. After all, more than one in ten new mothers experience postnatal depression within a year of giving birth, and you're more likely to have PND if you have previous mental health problems. This week's storyteller dealt with this very issue, but she is a shining example of how postnatal depression is a temporary illness that you can make a full recovery from. Here's Leanne Bayliss. I grew up in Thatcher's care system in the 80s, which was a pretty bad place to be. Then in the 80s, you go through different stages. So you have people that are responsible for you, but you're not adopted. And then there's a period of time when you can be with parents, but you could be pulled back and given back to your birth parents. So it took quite a while to be adopted by my lovely parents now who couldn't actually have children. I have an adopted sister. We're not actually sisters, um, blood related, but we're, we're both adopted from different families by the one family. I know that my birth mom was 17. She was a drug addict um, in quite a bad place. I know my birth dad was late to mid 40s, again, drug addiction. And that's kind of where I've personally left it. I've rocked my boat so much over my life and I know my mental health state and I can't, I can't go there. Honestly, to never know the truth is a really hard thing to live with but I'm never going to know the truth. It is a tough one, but you can never find the answer, so you kind of just have to stop looking at some point. It's just a crazy maze, and you can go round and round and round, and you have to go, right, where's the exit? 
I'm getting out. After giving birth to my daughter, my outlook on it all has completely changed. Uh, I have a lot more sympathy, empathy. I've let go of hate. I've let go of shame as well. That was a big thing that you live with is just this shame and also rejection of not being good enough. I've come to put things to bed. I've come to live with things. I've come to love things and learn from things. And that's kind of where I want to leave it. But I have to say, there is still that element of, you know, you could be walking down the street and you're like, is that person my brother, my sister, my this and the other? There's always that yearning. But I think it's down to the individual person with what you can cope with, what you can't with what you want to get out of life and I know that my life is very settled and I love what I've had and I cherish and I'm very blessed to be in the situation I am. My adoptive parents were always completely honest with me they were like you were loved but they couldn't keep you because of this but we love you and they were just absolutely selfless about it and always explained it. I was very heavy as a child. So at the age of 11, I think I was about 10 and a half stone. And like, I'm only five, I haven't grown since I was 15. So I'm still the same height, five foot one. So I was quite large and then I lost a lot of weight. So I think I was overconfident, but then I was overconfident. I was shy, but then I was obnoxious. Yeah, I just would ping between lots of things. Um, and just getting people, how I felt was just uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable as a human being. I think I was quite an attention seeking, but not in an extreme way. I just wanted people to like me. So I was always a child that was going above and beyond for everyone because I was just desperate to grab their love, their affection, their attention. I was heavily into ballet, heavily into dancing. My parents would take me swimming, gym, literally anything I wanted, I would do it. My parents always said to me, you haven't got to be a lawyer, you haven't got to be a mathematician, all you've got to be is you. And I had that support while I was growing up to try all these wonderful things. So yeah, I was a good child. I was a mischievous child, should I say. And I think especially later on in teens, the urge for people to like me, accept me, just made me do really silly things. I would be that person that would buy the B&H 10-pack before going into school and I would keep them in my locker. I would try and have a party behind my parents' back because of wanting people to come around. So later on in life, I was always good. Like I remember the head teacher pulling me in and she was like, but you are such a good kid. I just wish you'd be a good kid. Later on in my teens, I was lost. I look back at that person I was then at that teenager and I just want to give her some love. I just want to say to her, everything's going to be all right. You are good enough because literally I would try and be an emo. I would try and be a rocker. I would try and be the cool kid. I would try and be the new out there person. I would try to fit into everything and I found that I didn't fit into anything. A lot of my teens was just spent going to parties, getting drunk, smoking weed. And I see now, looking back, 
from the age of 15, I had a drink problem. Drink was this thing that made me fit in, that made me acceptable to people, that made me the fun person because I was so wild about it. But it all seemed fun at the time. It all seemed this majestic, fun, teenagers. I was rebellious. I had everything that I wanted to have. And I could do anything that I wanted to do. I like finished school, went into college. Literally the week before I was supposed to finish college, I sacked it off. I sacked it off to go to a party or because I think I'd gone to a party on the Friday night and I just couldn't be bothered. So two years worth of work, I just sacked off and I didn't really care and things sort of got a bit out of control then. I couldn't work out what I was supposed to do. I was more interested in chasing boys, buying drugs, having drinks than anything else. You know, there was no pipeline. Lots of my friends were like planning their wedding, putting money in their savings towards the house. I was like, right, I'm going to a metal field and I'm going to get off my tits, like literally for about seven days. And hopefully I might fly to Ibiza when I come back. Like I just, I just didn't care. I was really respectful to other people. Like I had good relationships with friends, I had a good relationship with my parents at that point as well. I was just really wild. And how I felt inside about that was wild. I just didn't know which way to be called. I didn't have any comfort in my soul. I was really uncomfortable with myself. Is all I can remember feeling and looking back was just uncomfortableness about who I was. Because I was always a dancer as well, I went heavily into dance, got some dancing jobs. Everything was great. I was like, I'm loving this. There were routines as well, dancing. Like, you have to be fit. You have to be in the routine. You can't go on the session. You have to do all this. Unfortunately, I was still going on the session while being an extreme dancer and everything went very wrong. I had an accident, came out of a nightclub, fell in front of the bus and that was like that was it then that was the end of the dancing career so something that I just found yeah as previously that was like my saving grace but I was still on the session which is why what happened happened I wasn't like extremely extremely hard but you know my dancing career was completely over one day you've got everything that you could possibly ever want the next day you get up and you haven't got any of it and you haven't even got the people that were there doing it with you because they're all working they're all dancing and you're sat at home thinking what am I going to do now so after that my friend at TJ Fridays knew I was having a hard time and her husband lived in Cavos and the one day I walked in to obviously get drunk and uh, she just pushed an aeroplane ticket and went sure she can go and work for George if she wants I was I was out here I was out here and I worked there for two years in a Chinese buffet in Cavos. And I also worked at this place called Limelight that was a club. So I used to do the Chinese buffet and then on the nighttime I used to sell tickets for the nightclub so I'd get into the nightclub for free. And then I'd get drunk and then I'd go straight into work and then I'd sell tickets. Like I did that seven days a week for two years. I was absolutely off my face. The one saving grace of Cavos is you can't get too many drugs or you just think you're going to go to prison, like proper prison. There was a lot of racism going around, uh, but apart from that, it was just boozing, boozing, boozing. And then one night in Kevils, 
I stopped on a bridge and like woke some lads up because over there, like if you fall asleep, you, you just get robbed. Like it, it happens all the time. I wake these lads up because I'd seen them in the complex like a couple of days before and I was like chatting to them. I was like, lads, lads, wake up. And they woke up, realised that they'd been robbed and beat the living crap out of me and my friends. Um, so I ended up going to hospital for a couple of days. The workers found all these men, this big massive fight in the street, covers, and it broke me. I was battered. Like, I've never been in, like, I've been in a couple of scraps in my youth. Um, you know, pulling people's hair, fighting in the toilets. But, you know, but this was like, just absolutely obliterated. So after that, I came home. I then was still in a mess of drinking, not knowing what was going on, how life was going to work out, and just did job after job, catering, sometimes at the office, sometimes I worked for next tram suite, sticking stickers on pieces of paper for nine hours, like in a chicken factory. Like it was just mad. I did all these things that I just kind of didn't really like, but I was doing them because they gave me money to go out and buy drugs and alcohol. And they just about, well, I wasn't even bothered about paying my rent for us. They still weren't in my life at this point. They were still so far behind. But I got a job uh, working in recruitment and it was my thing. It was my thing. It was fast paced. It was aggressive. It was angry. I was good at it. I went for the catering side of it, basically, so I could visit pubs, bars, and restaurants and get stuff for free. Got a company credit card. Thank you very much. That's my cocaine on a Friday night. You know, it was just living the dream. Got a deal at seven o'clock in the morning. My boss would give me a shot. It was amazing. And I was good at it. And I worked in recruitment for several years up until the point that I was like 31. Did extremely well like new wave fragrances the company that i worked for there were four of us we saw it to elizabeth Alden for like 2.8 million like i got a massive payout i have none of that left literally for two years after that i just didn't do anything i didn't work i just got on the session and then decided in my wisdom that me and my friend were gonna what do we like doing we like drinking so what should we do right we'll buy a bar we'll go and buy a bar because that's a really clever thing to do to people that got a massive drink problem did that for like a few years and then into the grand scheme of things i found out i was pregnant and life changed Oh my goodness, life changed dramatically. Um, I've been seeing someone we weren't really, what I'd say, in a relationship. I spoke to him about it. He was like, it's cool, we'll do it together, but we're not together. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can I can deal with that. He's going to stick around. That's decent. We weren't married. We weren't really in a relationship. That's a decent thing to do. And then I started my pregnancy, which in my second scan, I found out that my daughter was going to be born seriously ill. Most of my pregnancy, I pretended it wasn't happening. Lots of my friends didn't know I was pregnant people that I worked with didn't know I was pregnant until probably about eight months because I didn't want to admit it to myself. I was kept getting told by the hospital that because of the heart condition she wasn't going to live, she wasn't going to survive. So I detached myself from the situation entirely. 
also three weeks after that Darcy's dad decided not to be a part of it because of that information so that was like a huge blow I was given an option in the hospital because of the severity of her illnesses that I could terminate over late termination date and I just remember looking at my dad because I'd actually took my dad into the appointment with me like I just kicked over a chair and a table and I was like get me out of here now get me out of here now and my decision I didn't even need to say it like they knew while I was walking out what I was going to do and then I had her a bit of a whirlwind um had her early she was premature it was very stressful I didn't get to meet her, I didn't get to hold her. She was took straight away from me. Darcy has pulmonary atresia, VSD and tetraethylos, which are all heart conditions, but she was also born with imperated anus, uh, which means she doesn't have a bum hole. So she had a colostomy straight away from birth. Um, but she also has a condition called cloaca. Um, this is a very rare condition and it's where your urine tract, your bowel, um, everything, even your vagina pathogens are all attached. So they have spent years trying to unattach them. She now doesn't have a stoma. She has an ACE site, so she has a hole in her stomach where we wire her up and, and things like that. She has two vagina pathogens, two wounds, and one of them is usable. Together with all those conditions, Darcy is one of three people in this country with all those conditions. To, to have them together is very, very rare. I remember sitting in the ward and they put me in a side room because they didn't want to put me on the ward with all the other people with their babies. And then I started to, you know, 10 hours after having a cesarean section, uh, discharge myself and get myself to the hospital where my daughter was. From the moment I got on that ward, they didn't need to tell me where she was. I could feel her. I went, that's, that's her. I just gravitated towards her. Darcy had to have lots of operations. She was very poorly. It was very, very tough. But then we were home and doing mothering things. She would have 12 medicines a day. My alarm was always going off for something, for some medication or trying to, if I missed a medication, I'd have to stay up because she'd have to have it. I had an apta mat at home under her cot, which is basically, it's an alarmed mat. So you can tell if she stopped breathing. So she had one of them, lots of medications, obviously stoma changes. I look back and I think, you know, we were blessed. You know, she's very lucky to to be alive. But it was very, very tough. But it was tougher because of what I was experiencing. I just assumed that I was sad. People would say to me, why aren't you happy she survived? But just this overwhelming, crippling sadness. And I was doing all these things that people were telling me to do, you know, like they were like, you need to breastfeed. And I was like, I can't breastfeed because she's a cardiac baby. They can't work too hard. So all the things that you are trying to do to keep yourself in this maternal manner are being taken away from you. 
I really, really struggled afterwards. Everything was going really well with Darcy. But the sadness, I would just continually cry for hours. Some moments I would wake up, I would be crying all day. I couldn't stop the tears. And I just thought, oh, it's just stress. It's just worry. Um, I then started reading loads of mom's books and thinking, I've got postnatal depression. I just felt overwhelmed of like reading all these things, acknowledging the fact that I felt like all these other women. But also I was confused by what other people were saying because some people have this complete rejection towards their child. But I felt this desperate need to have connection because you read stories about women harming their children because they have postnatal depression and they are suffering with not having connection and there's nothing there. I loved my child intensely, but... I didn't trust myself in doing things around her. Anything I could hurt her. I could just, I didn't want to touch her a lot of the time. Even like soft stroking on her hair, like I'd be shaking because I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to damage you. I'm going to do this. And it, and it was this just crazy chaos thinking, of course, I'm never going to harm her hair on my daughter's head, but I'm going to hurt her. Trying to play all this out in front of other people is a really hard thing as well because you don't want people to see you crying because they're going to think you're mad. You don't want people to see you shaking when you're touching the child because they think that there's going to be something wrong with you. So you're holding so many things down. It's so difficult to, to get through. Motherhood in that time, I felt like one, what the hell have I done? Two, I don't want to do this. I felt that just I wasn't good enough. I felt like I'd signed up to something and I couldn't do it. And I really wanted to. I really wanted to do it more than anything else. I wanted to be this good mother. I had this changing bag. I had all this thing. I was single mum. I knew I was going to be a single mum and I was going to be a badass. But I just didn't feel any of those things. I didn't feel this elation of going home and having people around my house to see the baby. It was very much, I just want to shut the curtains and for everything, get everyone to go away. And somehow I'll work it out. Somehow it will magically get better. Just this overwhelming sense of anger as well, of the tears, the frustration of feeling sad all the time, the frustration of not having the connection that you want to have. And looking at other people, like I would look around at other people like playing with their babies and I'd want to do it and it wasn't dangerous. And looking back, you know, you see how over the top you are with everything, how much everything is just so heightened and how you, your fear is just so heightened with panic as well because the lack of sleep, the lack of the deprivation of everything, the deprivation of your soul really you know, everything that you're supposed to be, everyone's watching you, everything's supposed to be magical. And it it just wasn't. Everything that I thought it was going to be, it absolutely wasn't. I've had depression before, and it, it's, uh, well, obviously it is a different type of depression, but when I've been in depression, 
I know I'm depressed. I know there's something going on. I can identify that. When I had postnatal depression, I just thought I was this person that had lost their mind. Because Darcy was, and I was so worried in pregnancy and all this, I kind of put the, my feelings and my upset because of trauma, because of things that I went through with her. But after stripping it down, it's like there were two halves of me. There was the mother that was worried about her child and there was mother lost. Uh, there was the mother that would cry tears for her child and the things of how life was going to change. But there, there was mother lost who was crying for no reason. And mother lost was like an outer layer. So she was like a piece of tracing paper over a proper piece of paper. And she was just hovering all the time. I could see the two very differently and they felt very differently. I could acknowledge the worry and upset around this and the birth and what could be and the future. But I could also recognize and after speaking to people and after studying it as well, this, this just shadow, this shadow of this woman that I wanted to be that I couldn't be. The tracing paper was just hanging over me. It was like a veil. I couldn't see properly. I could see this. I could see mom recovering with a child who was poorly to mom suffering with postnatal depression. So it was it was very difficult and it was difficult for me to admit. So in my head, it was the struggle of, okay, I know it's there. I know it's not just Darcy's needs, Darcy's illness. You know, I should be elated. We've come through all of this. We've got life. All the things that they told me we wouldn't have, we've got. And I feel the worst. Literally everything would be cracking. Uh, there was There was no light. There was just darkness, complete darkness. And I remember thinking, right, I have to share this. Who can I share this with? And I actually had a really lovely midwife who would come and visit me at the hospital. I said to her, I don't feel right. And she said, what do you mean? Like physically, emotionally, like how, how do you feel? And I said, I can't explain it, but she, she could see me like, cause I just didn't stop crying for like, about six to seven weeks, just continual tears. My eyes were so red, it just looked like I was gonna cry blood at some point. And she just said, like, I described how I was feeling and she said, do you, what do you want to do about it? And I said, I don't know, what do you do about it? What do you do about these things? And I think, honestly, the first time we spoke about it, I was just so worried about her reaction, what she was gonna do or whether she was gonna tell someone else or whether they were gonna take my child off me and this, that and the other. I wasn't really thinking about the help that I was gonna get or gonna need. And I think she knew that because the next day she came back and she said, I understand your fears. There's so many women out there like you, but I promise you you've done the right thing. Social services are all gonna come. They're not gonna take your baby off. You have held your hands up and said, I need help. Whereas lots of women hide. And I understand that. She offered to get me some help. She offered to get me a doctor's appointment. She offered some referral places uh, to a place that we have in Birmingham. She also asked me to go to the midwife clinic. I said no, because I was so scared of social services and 
everything that like I, I was just petrified. I was a single mom. I was full of judgment. I was full of just everyone's going to think this. So she did signpost me to lots of things. I was just too scared. I did something the one day. I just got the pushchair, put her in the pushchair. I was sitting at the door. I was like, right, I'm going for a walk with my baby. And I just, I don't know, with all my might, with all my strength, I walked out the door and I made myself do that every day. And then it'd get a further walk and it would be more adventurous. And then about three months after that, I joined Music Shakers, which is a group where you can take your baby and meet other moms. And then I met other moms and I started being brave into a sense of communicating with other moms. And it's surprising how many people have been in your situation or in your situation or have been in a situation. Um, so that was the turning point, that one footstep out the door that morning. I don't know what it was. I didn't think about it the night before. I didn't know I was going to do it. Just snap, do it. And it was the best thing I ever did. But planning routine was a huge thing and keeping on top of it, keeping on top of routine, walking, gentle exercise. I started doing like coloring books on the night time as well, um, because that was something that was really helpful just to take my mind off it. Um, and that was a huge turning point, just meeting other moms in similar situations who you think are gonna be judgmental, but are the least judgmental people in the world. And yesterday, those moms that I met for the first time, I'm still drinking coffee with them and we have this beautiful relationship and they're my rock. You know, they are my absolute rock. The one people, like the people that I didn't ever want to speak to was other moms, but there were the people that I could heavily rely on, get their wisdom, gain their strength, have their hugs, eat cake with them and learn that I wasn't the only one. The time I was so scared to even admit it, but then, you know, I like other moms come out with, I talk about not wanting to touch my child and then someone was like, I left my child on the top of the car in the car seat and almost drove off. And then another mom tells you something else and another mom. And it's like, we're all struggling. Whatever it is, we are all struggling and we're all not perfect. And I think perfection, you know, there's some great grids on motherhood, but it's not real. It, like, not whatever it's real. And you have to understand that. And you have to understand what mother you want to be, because that's a lot of the pressure coming out of postnatal depression as well, is, right, I'm through this now. What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? Again, finding that identity. You've also had a child that has changed your identity. You're no longer Leanne. You're Darcy's mom. It, you lose your personality. And, and that's another thing as well. And postnatal depression can stem. I think I was in it for quite a while. It can be two weeks, six weeks, six months, a year. Postnatal depression can look so different for so many. And I know that 80% of women that I've ever come into contact with have only known they've had it after and can only identify it after. Motherhood today is absolutely wonderful. I have the most special bond with my child in the world. It's deep. It's hard work. Don't say that. And she's getting to the point where she's six years old and she is a feisty one. But um, motherhood is fantastic. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't even change what I went through. And I look back and when I was talking about guilt 
about the time that can change. I can't change it. But I look at motherhood now and think, God, I went through that. And at the time, I didn't know I was going through that. And I was going through that as well. And I pulled myself out of it. And I did all the work. And I think it is about doing the work. And I think the first piece of work is the hardest. And that's saying, I don't feel right. Or I need help. And those aren't easy words. They aren't easy words. I've said them lots of lots of times now, but they're the ones to get you to the place of where motherhood is this. I wouldn't have it any other way. I absolutely wouldn't have it any way. She is the life of my life. She is everything I do. I am recovering alcoholic as well. I am three and a half years sober. I've been sober now for longer than my daughter has being born so I'm very pleased about that I do everything for her even though my recovery is for myself she was the one that instigated it she was the one that inspired it motherhood's great it's wonderful it's all that I ever imagined it to be and more and harder and more financially draining but it's it's wonderful it's truly wonderful and I never thought it'd be like this because when you're in it you just think you're always going to be in it. You you just think that this is the mother that you are. And that's really hard to dissociate yourself with because you can be the mother that you aspire to be. Um, and it's small steps. It really is small steps. I don't know everything. I'm probably not the best mother in the world, but I try. And I think that's my one word of advice people in any situation sobriety recovering from postnatal depression recovering from trauma is this is your journey and and don't look around you know share with mothers share with people around you but don't let it define your journey don't think just because you've still got your postnatal depression and Jane down the road is out with her baby every week joining music shakers and you're not doesn't mean you're always going to be there doesn't mean you're always going to be that struggling mother um and it, and it just it just doesn't it can be a beautiful place it really can i was always full shame and guilt because i wanted more out of the experience than i got i never will be able to turn those clocks back and have those loving hugs that I deserved to have but I couldn't because I was too petrified to pick up my child I am glad that she'll never know how much I cried um, but I know I did I know that that took away precious moments of both of our lives and I can't change that the shame at the time <clears throat> was I wanted everyone to be proud of me and I didn't think they would be and because she'd got through so much it was like I had nothing to complain about what was I being sad about I didn't you know this was the person that was ill because she had physical things this is what was illness but my mental state I didn't see as, as an illness so I was really trying to get over those things so the shame the shame I can get over um and I have done and I've done lots of work on it had lots of therapy and always will um but the guilt is something that just sort of still sits there with me and live with it and I don't cry about it and I'm aware of it 
but there's always things in life that you can look back on that you'd love to just have that moment again. And there's a lot of those times that back in that period of time when I'd like to get some time back. Darcy is a feisty little minx. She is just another me. We are two peas in one pod. Um, she's a ballet dancer. She's a gymnast. They tell her that she can't do something. She has done it. Like we were on holiday recently and she was like stood on the beach in a swimming costume. She was like, take a picture for the surgeons. Send it to the surgeons. I want them to see it because they told me I'd never stand on this beach. Um, she, she's just absolutely amazing. You know, she has got extra needs. She knows it, but she teaches the world about it. I couldn't ask for any more. Very honest that I struggled with her, with her. I'm very honest about, she knows mommy's sober. Uh, she knows mommy doesn't do any silly juice or any white thing. You know, she, she just knows all about it. She is wise, she's kind, she's just everything you could possibly want for your child. Saying that, she can be a very uh, trying human being sometimes, but I've taught her to be proud of who she is and push the boundaries, so she's just pushing them with me and that's fine, she can keep doing so. But yeah, she's a wonderful little human being, one who inspires so, so many. We just recently did a talk with Birmingham Children's Hospital and Darcy wanted to talk and she spoke in front of all of these children that are going through similar things or may in the future go through and spoke about her story. I found it hard to even get some words out and she, she took over the mic but it's amazing because she understands that the world doesn't understand and as she says, me and you mom, we're going to change the world. And we are, we are together going to change people's opinions and people's perceptions of people like us. Mothers that go through post-traumatic stress, children with disabilities. I am in alcoholic recovery as well, you know. Life isn't born of plain sailing, but you get to a point of peace and uh, it's a nice place to be. Recovery to me means acceptance, I feel. Acceptance of what we have been through, uh, what has brought us to what we have been through and how we look in the future. Recovery for me is massively being coming to peace, finding respect for myself. And peace is the main thing, peace of just, okay, I'm here. This has happened, this has happened, this has happened, but this is who I am and I'm still here and I'm still fighting and I'm still giving it a go. Um, so yeah, peace, finding peace and acceptance, acceptance in here we are, why we've done the things that we've done and just understanding that we've all done a few terrible things, so it's all okay, you know? It's all okay and being proud of your recovery because it's a brave, bloody thing to do you know, it's done their day to day, stood in front of school bombs and everything. And I quite openly speak about it because it's who I am. And I'm proud of that. And if it makes one person, if it makes 10 people, if it makes somebody just go and get some help, then that, that's what it's all about, isn't it?
you've been listening to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show and join the community on Instagram at Recovery From Anything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website, recoveryfromanything.com. Thank you for listening.